Well, it is a privilege to be back with you all this evening. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn there with me to the first book of Kings. The first book of Kings. As we jump back into our Route 66 series after over a month-long hiatus, I find that it would be essential and prove helpful to cover the tracks by which we have tread. So far, we have covered the books from Genesis to 2 Samuel. And in Genesis, we learned about the beginning of many things. We saw the beginning of creation, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of the fall and sin into this world. We saw God's dealing and entering into covenant with Abraham and his descendants through the Abrahamic covenant. And ultimately, we saw the beginning of the Israelite sojourn in Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we learned of God's deliverance and redemption of his people from Egypt by his outstretched mighty arm, where he entered into covenant with them at Sinai. And after a year-long stay at Sinai, the people of Israel journeyed on their way to the promised land only to be hindered by their grievous sin of not trusting in the Lord, leading to the prescription of death to the first generation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness. Israel then came to the plains of Moab on the eastern side of the promised land where Moses expounded the law to this second generation who were poised to enter into the land. And in Joshua, we saw God the king leading the people into the land in conquest. But we also saw that not all of the nations were dispossessed in the land, which ultimately was a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. The sons of Israel in turn forsook Yahweh and turned to these pagan gods, leading to the cyclical pattern of the judges cycle where God would raise up judges and deliverers to deliver his people from foreign adversaries. And the period of the judges gave way to the establishment of the monarchy in Israel where we saw the kingships of Saul and David in 1 and 2 Samuel. And you remember in 2 Samuel that God entered into covenant with David promising that one of his descendants would have an everlasting kingdom. One of his descendants who we know to be the son of David according to the flesh, yet David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we come to this morning in our study. We come to the book of 1 Kings. Now, just as the book of Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, which are divided in our English Bible, are meant to be one united whole. They were merely separated for the sake of the limited space in ancient writing documents. And you know, 1 Kings is not some dry and boring history of the Judean and Israelite kings. I think so often the times we get to the book of 1 Kings and we see that the king of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and reigned for so and so years and Everything else that this king did are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. And it's the next king, it's the next king. But the book of First Kings was written as a theological history. It was written as a theological history to detail and chronicle the kings of Judea and Israel, especially in relation to the Deuteronomic standards. So as you see the kings and you See the evaluation of the narrator in the book of Kings. It's always in accordance with the law of God. How did they rule in relation to God's revealed will? As Paul House writes, you see, theology and history are inseparable in Kings. Historical effects were caused by theological principles that were either heeded or ignored. The book of 1 Kings has much to teach us this morning. As one commentator wrote, the books of 1 and 2 Kings, like the other historical books of the Old Testament, were written not simply to record facts of history, but to reveal and preserve spiritual lessons which have timeless value. And that's what the Apostle Paul wrote, is it not? Consider Romans 15.4. This was written for our instruction 
or 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. These were written as examples for us. Verse 11, this was written for our instruction. And so as we analyze this book that has of great significance to our daily life, I want us to study it under two distinct periods, two distinct periods in the monarchy in Israel. First, we will look at the United Kingdom in the first 11 chapters. And secondly, we'll look at the divided kingdom, which ensued after Solomon's reign. So with that in mind, let us make haste to our study of this book this morning. First, let's study this first distinct period of the monarchy, which I've labeled the United Kingdom. It's in these first 11 chapters of 1 Kings that we behold the kingdom of Israel under the reign of Solomon, King David's son. And as we analyze this period of the monarchy, I wanna study it under three phases. Three phases of the reign of Solomon in the United Kingdom. The first phase that we see, we see run from chapters one through four, and it is the establishment of the Solemnic Kingdom. The establishment of the Solemnic Kingdom. We've talked about the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Solemnic Kingdom, Solomon's Kingdom. And the narrative of Kings picks up right where Samuel left off. But yet it seems that there's about to be a transition in the nation. As David is growing elderly in his years, you can see this in verse one of chapter one, where the narrator writes, now King David was old, advanced in age. And there's always a question that comes to the fore when a political leader becomes elderly in years. And that question is who's next in line? Now, many of you know that I do love country music and I'm talking prime classical country music. And there's a song from the classical king of country, George Jones, that says, who's gonna fill their shoes? And that's the question that's presented to us in the first chapter of Kings. Who's gonna fill King David's shoes? Who's gonna be the appointed heir to the throne? Now, this question presents quite a dilemma in the first chapter as we see this jockeying for kingship. Look at verse five of chapter one. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And as the narrative unfolds in the first chapter, we see Bathsheba and we see Nathan the prophet, two characters that we were introduced to in the pages of 2 Samuel come to King David and ask him, is this the case? Is this true? Adonijah is leading up a revolt to become king. But notice King David's response in verses 29 through 30. The king vowed and said, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely as I vowed to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying your son Solomon shall be king after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. According to the reigning monarch, it was not Adonijah that was going to be the successor to Solomon's throne, but rather it was to be the son of Bathsheba. It was to be Solomon. And as the narrative in chapter one unfolds, we see that Zadok the priest anoints him as king in verse 39. And chapter two unfolds, and begins with King David's charge to Solomon. And I want you to notice the dying words of, so or of David to Solomon in the first four verses of chapter two. David says, be strong therefore and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of Yahweh your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his, commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to that which is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all you do and wherever you turn. This charge by King David is not just the charge to be a faithful king. This is the charge to be a faithful follower of Yahweh, to be a faithful Christian, to be a faithful follower of Yahweh, you are to walk according to that which was written. And practically speaking, to walk according to that which is written implies knowing what is written. 
And if you remember, that's why the king was instructed to prescribe or to dictate for himself a copy of the law, to keep it with him, to allow it to govern his rule from the law of the kings in Deuteronomy 17. And that is why for you to be a faithful Christian, for one who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves your neighbor as yourself, you have to know the one whom you love. And you have to know how it is that you are to please him. And thanks be to God that he hasn't left us groping in darkness in this life. But he has clearly revealed himself in the pages of scripture so that we know how to please him. We are to walk according to that which is written. And we have that in the all-sufficient scriptures. This book that you have in your hands is God's revelation of himself to you and how you can be pleasing to him. And that's what Paul said to the Corinthians, is it not? Whether home or away, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him in all respects. We must know what is written. Now that David has died, Solomon is appointed king there's still this group of men who sought to establish the kingdom in the hands of Adonijah. Therefore, the rest of chapter two describes the consolidation of authority at the hands of Solomon. Look at the end of chapter two. I want you to notice this last brief detail that the narrator includes in verse 46. Thus, the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. Now, before we journey even farther into our study of 1 Kings, I wanna turn your attention back to verse 27 where we see an important detail. Verse 27 of chapter two. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to Yahweh. And notice this, catch this. In order to fulfill the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. You see, in this verse, there is a theme that is presented that pervades the book of Kings. And that is the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. It will be fulfilled regardless of human or mankind's attempts. What God has said will surely come to pass. What he has promised with his mouth, he will fulfill with his hand to borrow the language of Solomon in 1 Kings 8.24. 1 Kings 8.24, you see the same thing. Now Yahweh has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. Later in chapter eight, verse 56, blessed be Yahweh who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. 1 Kings 13, 26, 14, 18, 15, 29, on and on and on, according to the word which the Lord spoke. God is the sovereign over history and he will fulfill his plans according to his timetable. Well, we come to chapter three. Chapter three, and we see the epitome of a man who started off well. Look at verse three of chapter three. Now Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father, David. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't merely want to be known as a person that loves the St. Louis blues. I don't want to be merely known as a person that loves basketball or golf. I don't want to be known as a person that merely loves the Dallas Cowboys. This should be the ambition and the desire of all of our hearts that we, if someone were to look at our lives based upon what we do, who we interact with, what we post on social media, what media we intake, would they say of you that he or she loves God? That should be the crying ambition of every single one of our hearts. 
Look at verse five. Verse five, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, ask what you wish me to give you. In turn, I want to ask you, how would you respond to that question? In your heart of hearts, how would you respond if the Lord said, ask me what you wish me to give you? Being honest with yourself, would it be of things of eternal value? Or would it be for that relationship that you long for? Would it be for a successful and a stable job with upward mobility? Would it be for a car or a house or financial independence from under your parents? Or can you honestly say that you would request something such as to become more like Jesus Christ? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? That we would be conformed to the image of his son, who is the perfect image of God. Would that be what you ask for? Would you ask for a greater understanding of the scriptures, a greater meditation upon the scriptures, a memorization of the scriptures, a storing up of the scriptures in your heart that you might not sin against God? Would you request to be more faithful and effective in evangelism? Echoing the prayer of Paul to the Colossians that a door might be opened for you, that the word of God might go forth. Would you request to have a prayer life that was as consistent and zealous as that like George Mueller? Consider that question. How you would respond to that question is a good barometer and diagnostic of what's governing and ruling your heart. I've had to ask myself that question this week. And Solomon responds by asking for a wise and discerning heart. And God was pleased by this, not only bestowing on him a wise and discerning heart, but abundant riches and honor. And you can see this wisdom illustrated and exemplified at the latter half of chapter three with that account of the the two mothers. I won't detail it here. You can study that for yourself, but you can see this wisdom on full display in verses 16 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 28. And in chapter four, we see the officials that reigned over and with Solomon and his kingdom along with the Edenic-like conditions that represented his kingdom. Peace, security, prosperity. But I want you to notice a detail in verses 20 and 21. Let your eyes peruse there with me. We read, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore. Verse 21, now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. Does this hearken your mind back to the pages of Genesis? Where in Genesis 15, God takes Abraham and says, look at the stars, so shall your descendants be. Or later in Genesis 22, 17, your descendants shall be more numerous than the sand that is on the seashore. God is fulfilling his promises and will fulfill his promises. And you can see how in the beginning chapters of this book that the solemnic kingdom is established. There is peace, there is prosperity, there is great security. And it was at this time of great security and peace that allowed Solomon to focus inward and internal, internally to accomplish a building project and the greatest building project in ancient Israel. And that brings us to the second phase of the solemnic or the United Kingdom under Solomon, which I've labeled the establishment of the solemnic temple. We saw the establishment of the solemnic kingdom in verse, or chapters one through four and the establishment of the solemnic temple, chapters five through eight. In chapter five, we see the narrator detailing an alliance that was made between King 
Solomon and the king of Tyre, Hiram. We turn to chapter six, where I want us to pause for a moment and look at verse one of chapter six. This is an important verse in terms of Old Testament chronology, so I think that it would be wise of us just to stop here for a moment. Verse one says this. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of Yahweh. According to all the archeological data and extant manuscripts, it is a general consensus that Solomon began his reign around the year 970 BC. Four years after that would put the beginning of the construction of the temple in 966 BC. 488 years before that would date the Exodus around 1446, 1445 BC. If you want more details about that, I would love to talk to you afterwards, but we must move on. Chapter six details the dimensions and the materials of the building project. And this temple is absolutely magnificent. It is absolutely glorious. Chapter seven, after the completion of the temple, Solomon also builds a house for himself. And chapter seven details the workings out of this alliance where Hiram helped with the construction of a lot of the, the furniture and the furnishings of the temple. But I want us to move forward to chapter eight. I want us to fast forward to the day that the temple was dedicated and consecrated. At the beginning of chapter eight, you can see where the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. And this language should be familiar to us as we've journeyed throughout the Torah through the Pentateuch. When the tabernacle was completed and consecrated at the end of Exodus, we see this very reality played out. Exodus 40 verses 34 through 35 says, then a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. This was the established place of his dwelling. And now you have this same reality with the temple. And it's at this consecration, it's at this dedication of the temple that Solomon lifts his, his hands and his eyes toward heaven and he prays to Yahweh. Now, just as this prayer is the crowning jewel, the, the peak of a sense, if you will, of this section, I want us to stop the car, get out a little bit and enjoy the view. And so as we analyze Solomon's prayer in verses 22 through 53, I want us to notice really two realities that saturate this prayer. And that is the perfections of God in Solomon's prayer and the petitions to God in Solomon's prayer. First, in terms of the perfections of God, we see that God is unique. God is unique. In verse 23, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. To say that God is unique is to say that there is no one like him, that he is holy and separated from creation. He is transcendent. He is in a class all by himself. Isaiah 45, five says, I am Yahweh and there is none other. Besides me, there is no God. The gods of the nations are no gods. Secondly, God is faithful. He's faithful. Verse 24, you have kept with your servant, my father, David, that which you have promised him. Brothers, sisters, 
God is the faithful God who keeps his promises and his covenant. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He is the faithful God who cannot lie or change his mind. Everything that he has spoken will surely come to pass. Not only do we see the uniqueness of God and the faithfulness of God, we also see that God is loving. That he is loving in this prayer, that he has poured out his steadfast love upon his people. And God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34. He reveals himself as a God who is abounding in steadfast love overflowing in steadfast love. In Psalm 136, 26 refrains with the, the choral anthem, the steadfast love of God endures forever. Not only that, but we also see that God is omnipresent. Look at verse 27 with me. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. To say that God is omnipresent is to say that he is not bound by the constraints of space. He dwells in the fullness of space with the entirety of his being. Is this not what David prays in Psalm 139? Where shall I flee from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. While God has uniquely established and ordained the temple to be the visible manifestation of his presence upon earth, God is not a God that can be contained by a physical structure such as the temple. Fifth, we see that God is imminent. We see that God is imminent. You see this over and over again in this prayer. Solomon says, heed the prayer of your people, of your servant. Yes, God is transcendent in every sense. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He is the thrice holy God, but he is also imminent. What distinguishes the God of the Bible from the God of the deist is that he is near his people. Christian, is this not a comfort to your soul? You can have relationship with the God of the universe through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And not only that, not only does he tolerate your presence if you are a believer, but he welcomes it. I love what Joel Beakey says concerning the Eminence of God. He says the sufficiency of God would be of little comfort to God's children if God were distant from them or accessible in only some locations. Six, God is omniscient. You can see this in this prayer where it says that God knows the depths of the human heart. To say that God is omniscient is to say that God knows all things, past, future, present. I love what one Dutch reformed theologian said in the 16th century. This is the best definition I've come across. He said, God exercises knowledge in a single, immutable, infinite, and eternal act. Let's break that down a little bit. That is to say that he knows all things, always, immediately, and at once including the depths and recesses of the human heart. While this isn't technically a perfection of God, it pervades this prayer and I want us to look at it. And that is that God is forgiving. As you read this prayer, you see Solomon appeal to the character of God over and over again. If your people cry to you, forgive your people of your sin, bring them back to the land from which they were exiled. If you were to mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
answer no one, but with you, there is forgiveness. And as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7, forgiveness that is found in the redemption of Jesus Christ. If God's people humble themselves, if they come to the point of spiritual bankruptcy, acknowledging and confessing their sins before God, casting themselves on the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ in the gospel, God promises to forgive those sins. As the bedrock of our hope. Now these notes will be available to you later. So if you wanna go back and look at these, I would encourage you to do that. As R.C. Sproul said in the beginning of his book, I believe it was Knowing God, there is no greater need of the church than to have a renewed knowledge of who God is. Secondly, I want us to focus on the petitions to God. You think about the Christian disciplines of your life, believer. You think about the corporate worship. You think about studying the Bible. You think about evangelism and prayer. And it's from this prayer that we can learn much about one of those essential key components of our Christian faith, prayer. And we can learn that from the petitions of Solomon. Let's look at them together. First, Solomon petitions God to remain faithful to the covenant. Remember the covenant that you made with David, your servant. Do not forget your covenant. Another petition that Solomon offers is that God would hear the prayers of his people. Solomon prays that God would incline his ear wherever the people may be, whether that be there at the temple or whether it be far off, to incline his ear to their prayer. The third petition is that God would forgive the sin of his people. Multiple times in this prayer, Solomon prays that when the people of Israel sin and confess their sin, that God would be gracious and merciful to them and forgive them of their sin. Again, all of these will be online if you want to take them down. Another petition is that God would provide for the needs of his people. In famine, sickness, and drought, that God would incline his ear and respond on behalf of his people. And lastly, another petition that we see is that God would deliver his people from their enemies. As a result of their sin and as a result of the covenant curse coming upon them in exile, that God would deliver them from the enemies with which they were scattered. Now, I know this brief rest stop pushed our ETA back in our voyage of 1 Kings, but I wanted to zone in on this prayer for multiple reasons, for multiple reasons. Because this is the crowning jewel, the climax of this section, because of the overall flow that this prayer plays in Solomon's reign and also in the book of 1 Kings and also in terms of a biblical theology, And as we analyze this prayer, there's just some questions that come to mind. Do we pray this way? Do we pray this way? Are our prayers characterized by adoration and praise for who God is, for his character? Do we appeal to the character of God in our prayers? I do this often when I sin. God, you have promised, you have said you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them, to cleanse us from all matters of unrighteousness based upon your word. Forgive me of my sin. Appeal to the character of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. God, you are merciful, you are gracious, you are Jehovah Jireh, you are the God who will provide, provide for my need. In your prayers, do you recognize your sinfulness? forsaking, confessing, and repenting of those sins before the Lord? Do you recognize as you offer these prayers to God that he is the sovereign over history? Both the annals of human and redemptive history along with the daily affairs in your life. Or are our prayers characterized by more superficial things, more surface level matters? Notice in Solomon's prayer that he doesn't pray that Aunt Susan's pinky toe would stop aching. I know, remarkable Jewish name. 
Now, he does pray for the physical needs of his people, absolutely. But notice that the primary emphasis and pattern of this prayer is spiritual in nature. You see, as we look at this prayer, our own prayer lives need to be gauged and adjusted based upon what we find there. Now we must hurry back to the text. What we have just observed in this section is the establishment of the Solemnic Temple, which became the central hub of the religious life in ancient Israel. And that brings us to a third phase of the Solemnic Kingdom, which I've titled the Eclipse of the Solemnic Kingdom. The Eclipse of the Solemnic Kingdom. Look at chapter nine. It's in chapter nine that God gives these promises and warnings to Solomon. Walk before me in integrity and faithfulness and the Davidic dynasty would be preserved, that it would continue unhindered. Abandon me, forsake me in the pursuit of other gods and the people will experience the covenant curse of exile. This was a warning that Solomon needed to heed and the people of Israel needed to obey, yet failed so often in their history. Solomon and the people of Israel were to be wholly devoted to Yahweh and they were to abstain from the worship of false pagan gods. In chapter 10, we see an interlude, one that includes the queen of Sheba coming and experiencing and visualizing the vast wisdom of Solomon and the glories of his kingdom. And the extravagance of Solomon's kingdom is put on full display with the descriptions provided in chapter 10. But then we turn the page to chapter 11 and look at the first words of chapter 11 where we read profoundly sad words. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Do you remember how Solomon was described in chapter three, verse three? Solomon loved Yahweh. And in the same construction here in the first verse of chapter 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And this clearly transgressed the revealed will and law of God. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse three, you shall not intermarry with them. Speaking of the, the foreign nations that they would enter that were in the promised land. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And just as God had promised these foreign wives turned Solomon's heart away. Look at verse three. Verse three ends with that his wives turned his heart away. In verse six, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and did not follow Yahweh fully. It's because of Solomon's grievous sin that God promises to strip the kingdom away from him in verses nine through 11. And I want us to pause for a moment at this juncture. And I want to ask you, have you sinned grievously? Even as those that are blood-bought, redeemed sinners, knowing everything that you do, have you sinned grievously against the God who redeemed you with the blood of Jesus Christ? If so, which the answer is yes. I want to provide hope for you. You see, Solomon is not just in this portion of Scripture, but Solomon authored other inspired texts. And as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, as Solomon looks back in retrospect over his life, the end of the matter is this. This is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes, this is what the song of, this is what Solomon says. The conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God, keep his commandments. This applies to all people. If you sin, and as we saw in Solomon's prayer in verse 46, that there is no man who does not sin, then brother, sister, be quick to confess, quick to repent, get back up on the horse, and set this mantra before you. Fear God and keep his commandments. In response to the idolatry of Solomon, notice that God raises up adversaries against Solomon. Verse 14, then Yahweh raised up an adversary, 
Also, verse 24, another adversary is, is raised up by God. And I want you to notice a repeated theme in chapter 11, especially. And that theme is that God would be faithful to his covenant, which he established with David. Look at verses 12 through 13. Even though this kingdom would be stripped from Solomon, it is for the sake of David that the Davidic dynasty would continue. God had promised an everlasting kingdom and he would make good on that promise. Look at the end of chapter 11. Again, we see in verse 34, it is for the sake of my servant David whom I chose. And again, verse 36, but to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem. This is the story of the United Kingdom under the reign of Solomon. What begins with great prosperity and security ends with hostility and promises of division. Solomon's reign was marked by peace for the vast majority of it. But friend, I must introduce you to one who said, one greater than Solomon is here. You see, while Solomon brought great peace and security to the nation of Israel from foreign adversaries and political opponents, there is only one who can make peace between you and a holy God. And the Bible describes us in our natural state as those who are hopeless, those who are helpless, those who are without God, Ephesians 2.12. The Bible describes us in Romans 5 as those who are sinners, those who are ungodly, those who are enemies with God, with no peace. Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Peace has been made by the greater Solomon. It is only through the greater Solomon that one can be reconciled to a holy God. That's your only hope, that's my only hope. And my plea is that you would look to the Lord Jesus Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who offers abundantly forgiveness, the one who says that there is redemption found in me. Come to me, you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to him. And not only will he give you external peace, but he can give you peace with God, which is yours and I's greatest need. Now this brings us to the second period of the monarchy, and that is the period of the divided kingdom. And as we study this section, I want to analyze it under three divisions just to help us grasp this section. This section actually runs all the way through 2 Kings 17, but just for our study purposes, the first division that I want us to analyze ranges from chapters 12 through 14, and that is the initial kings of the divided kingdom, the initial kings of the divided kingdom. You see, it wasn't soon after Solomon's death that we see his son Rehoboam acting foolishly. But I want you to notice that it was not necessarily just the foolishness of Rehoboam that led to the division of the kingdom. Look at verse 15 of chapter 12. It says this, it says, this was a turn of events from Yahweh that he might establish his word. I love that phrase. This was a turn of events from the Lord. This reminds me of Proverbs 21.1. You can mark that down. But the king's heart is as channels of water in the Lord's hand. He controls it wherever he wishes. And according to God's word through the prophet, Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern 10 tribes and Rehoboam remains king of the southern kingdom. And notice this, it's for the sake of David for the sake of the Davidic covenant that God made. Now, Jeroboam was wicked. You can see this in verse 28 of chapter 12. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to him, is it too much that you to go up to Jerusalem? Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
I mean, this is straight out of the playbook of Exodus 32, straight out of Aaron's idolatry there. And in chapter 13, we see this interesting interlude about the story of two prophets. And we learn a couple key truths from this chapter. We learn again what we have already echoed over and over again, that God's word would come to pass, that it would surely be fulfilled. We also learn that no one, barring office or prestige, is exempt from obedience to God's word, whether that be the kings of Israel or the prophets. In chapter 14, we see Ahijah come, or we see Jeroboam send his wife to Ahijah the prophet concerning their sickly son. And the prophet prophesies a harsh word for her that the entire dynasty of Jeroboam would be swept clean. And not only that, but that as a result of his sins with which he made Israel sin, that the northern kingdom of Israel would be exiled by the Assyrians, which would ultimately be fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 17. And it wasn't any better in the southern kingdom as well. You can see Rehoboam, you can see the characteristic of the kingdom In verse 22, it says, Judah did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Verse 24, they did according to all the abominations of the nations which Yahweh dispossessed before the sons of Israel. A second section we'll go through very briefly is the immediate succession in the divided kingdom. The immediate succession in the divided kingdom. You see all throughout the kings of the divided kingdom, you see this continual repetitive succession. And for the most part, generally, they are short-lived reigns that were marked by grievous idolatry and sin. Only with the brief hopes and glimmers of hope brought about by those righteous kings such as, such as Asa, as we see in chapter 15. Truly, the kingdom of Israel lay in a dilapidated and a bleak state. The golden days of David and Solomon had long passed. Now, this brings us to a third and a final division of this last section, which runs from chapter 16, verse 29, all the way to the end. And I've labeled it an intense conflict in the divided kingdom. An intense conflict in the divided kingdom. It's in this final section that we see this intense conflict take place between God's prophet Elijah and Israel's king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And even more so than that, between Elijah's God, Yahweh, and Jezebel, and Ahab's God, Baal. And Ahab was wicked. Wicked more than any who had come before him, the narrator says. Chapter 17, we see the prophet Elijah. And his prophetic credentials are verified by the miracles that he performs, including the raising of the widow's son. Notice verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, after the raising of her son from the dead, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is true. And in chapter 18, there's been this drought for three years in the land of Israel. And God instructs Elijah to go to King Ahab. And it's in verse 19 that Elijah presents this challenge before Ahab and the prophets of Baal. He takes Baal, the pagan god, to task, if you will. Look at verse 20, look at verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people, said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. And this challenge is set up where the prophets of Baal offer this sacrifice, and yet... There was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. I'd encourage you to jot down this reference, Psalm 115, three through eight. This describes the utter abject foolishness of idolatry. And contrasted to the silence and the impotency of this, this pagan god Baal, Yahweh, the true and living God, acts. 
verses 36 through 39. The fire of Yahweh fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. You see, we're all created to worship. And if we're not worshiping the God of the Bible, we're worshiping something else. We come to chapter 19. Elijah leaves this encounter. He flees to Horeb, the mountain of God. And he says, I alone am left. There is no one who has not bowed the knee to Baal. And yet notice God's response in verse 18. God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God has his righteous remnant. He knows who are his. Well, as we turn the page to chapter 20, the, the narrative focuses not so much on the prophet Elijah, but then it turns to Ahab in this war that takes place between Aram. In chapter 21, Ahab continues his wickedness by, by stealing Naboth's vineyard. And then we come to chapter 22. And in the words of one classic rock song, this is just the same old song and dance. New kings arise to the throne, different cast of characters, same story. What this shows us is that in the overall flow of redemptive history, that the son of David has not arrived yet. The seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 is still awaited. The Judean king prophesied in Genesis 49.10 is still future. And therefore, there is still hope for the people. On Wednesday, we'll pick up with 2 Kings as this narrative continues. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. It is so rich. It contains all we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we thank you that you have your righteous remnant, that you know who are yours. And even as we sang earlier, that you will hold them fast, that you will preserve them according to your will and your plan. God, now as we go up to corporate worship, would you help us to worship you in spirit and truth for your glory we pray in Jesus' name.